0: Check, check. There we go. The name of our current series is Anchor Church Distinctives. And last week we focused in on uh, God's Word, preaching God's Word and what we believe about God's Word. And then I told you last week that this week the sermon is all going to be about challenging my entire sermon last week. So last week I preached on how God's Word needs to be proclaimed. It is the Word of God, and we should preach it and believe it. And uh, I want you to say to me, no, no. No, it's the Word of God. Say no. No. See, what do you do when out in the world you believe something about God's Word and it's challenged and they're just like, no, it's not? Uh, You can't trust that book anymore. What do you say? Are you prepared to defend some of the convictions that we have as Christians in a day when the convictions are being pressed? Uh, Do you feel confident that if someone were to say to you, why do you believe God's the Bible is God's word. Do you have an answer? The Bible says that we have to be ready to give an answer, that you should be able to defend the faith that you hold. Uh, but sadly, many Christians don't feel confident defending their faith, and they certainly don't feel courageous defending their faith. So when someone says something like that, it either kills the conversation um, or, or questions the credibility of their witness, or worse. It makes Christians just get belligerent, and you, know, uh, you kind of strike back without a good answer. So the sermon last week was from Hebrews 4 uh, chapter or chapter 4 verse 12 where it said the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The whole sermon today is defending that that's true. You can't trust the Bible. That's the title of the sermon today. I have a few goals and um The goals that I have are this. I want to voice a few reasons people give today why we can't trust the Bible. And then I want to share reasons why we can and should trust the Bible. And my larger hope is that we can create a culture together as a church. uh, That church is the place we can ask the hard questions and find biblical, rational, practical answers. I want you to know that you can ask the hard questions here. Um, you can come to me, you can email me, you can ask your small group leader. This is a church that values your questions and takes them seriously and doesn't assume that you should just accept it all by blind faith. That's not the kind of church this is. We have to um, begin by facing the reality of what the world believes about truth. Because if you just say, oh, I'm going to go into it and show them that the Bible is true, you have to understand how the word true is being used differently today than it was used 25 years ago. Most people today do not believe in truth as an absolute category of knowledge and experience. We see that in um, a few things. First of all, the word of the year in 2016 was post-truth. Post-truth. It's, it's a defining phrase of our age. It's said that we live in a post-truth era. What does that mean? It means that people are content to believe what they want, regardless of the history or the facts or the evidence, um, what the history of the facts or the evidence suggests. Now, it just didn't start in 2016. Back in 2006, comedian Stephen Colbert was already making fun of how people were messing with, tampering with the idea of truth. In 2006, the word of the year was truthiness, a word that he invented on his show, but it actually got into the dictionary and became the word of the year. Here's how he described it on his show at the time. The word of the night is truthiness. Truthiness is what you want the facts to be, as opposed to what the facts are. What feels like the right answer, as opposed to what reality will support. We are divided between those who think with their head and those who know with their heart. Because that's where the truth comes from, ladies and gentlemen, the gut. Do you know you have more nerve endings in your stomach than in your head? Look it up. Now, somebody's going to say, I did look it up, and it's wrong. Well, mister, that's because you looked it up in a book. Next time, try looking it up in your gut. I did, and my gut tells me that's how our nervous system works. Now, he's totally mocking the idea that truth comes from the gut. But we live in a world where truth primarily is derived from feelings. So how, then, can we make the claim that the Bible is the Word of God that applies uh, uniformly over every man, woman, and child, who's ever lived, when people disagree with the definition of the word truth. I read Time Magazine, and in Time Magazine, the discrepancy is very clear. One minute, truth is whatever you decide or feel it to be. The next minute, they're showing a graphic of what percentage of the president's speech was true, according to a fact checker. Well, which is it? Can you have many opinions despite the facts? Or are we, fact, are we checking facts and telling you what is true, in fact, and what is false? The world really wants to have it both ways. And you need to know that when you start talking about how the Bible is true, the world doesn't just think that you are outdated or intellectually, you know, slow. They actually think you're dangerous. If you believe in truth, you are dangerous in the world today. If you take everything literally in the Bible, look at the violence and the abuse in the world and in the church that happens when people use the Bible or religion to confuse and control and attack people. Are you one of those zealots who takes it seriously? You're dangerous. It's against that backdrop of truth that I plan to defend the staggering Christian assertion this morning that the Bible claims to be and proves to be the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we believe that your Word is truth, but can we defend that claim? Can we defend that claim? We ask that you would show us how we can give an answer when our book is tested, when our beliefs are challenged, when The Bible comes under the knife of scrutiny. We pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses and start with our hearts. Show us, O Lord, indeed, that your word is true. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there's gonna be a lot of verses today, but they will all be put on the screen for you. You don't have to race around the Bible. And there are four basic uh, challenges to our book that I want to throw out there today and then give an answer to. The first one you can jot down in your bulletin is this. People will say this, you can't trust the authors. If people doubt the Bible, they'll usually they'll first go to the authors. Well, you can't trust the Bible because of the authors. The authors cannot be believed, uh, and therefore, whatever is in your book is unreliable because the authors were unreliable. The authors, as it is said by skeptics, were biased. They lived in a superstitious age, long before the dawn of scientific discovery. The industrial and technological revolutions had not happened yet. These people were primitive, bigoted, chauvinistic, homophobic, intolerant men. That's what you're hearing today in the universities and in the world. How do we answer that? What do we say when people say the authors can't be trusted and therefore the Bible is unreliable? Well, we could begin by revealing that skeptics wrote the Bible. Uh, the Bible was written in large part by people who doubted everything that was ending up in the Bible. Luke investigated everything carefully as he was writing it down, cataloging it and uh, for his friend. Paul destroyed the church, then he was saved, and then he ended up writing most of the New Testament. James was the half-brother of Je- of Jesus, told him that he was crazy when he was alive, then after Jesus rose from the dead, James was saved, believed, and became a leader in the early church and an author of the book one of the books of the Bible. So often, skeptics ended up writing the Bible. We know then that the Bible welcomes doubters, the Bible invites scrutiny, and so if you're a person who has questions about the Bible and really, really wants to know if it's true or not, the Bible is like, bring it on, you know, bring it on. And I want you to know that you can bring your hardest questions to the Bible and ask and expect to get solid answers. Can you trust the authors? Well, jot this down. They were authorized to speak for God. They were authorized to speak for God. Why should we trust them? Well, apostles like Matthew, John, Peter, and Paul saw the risen Lord. Their claim is that they saw with their own eyes the risen Lord. And then Bible books were written by people who were close to the apostles, like uh, Mark and Luke were close to the apostles. And then church leaders and elders like James and Jude and the author of Hebrews, uh, they wrote But with the authority of being close to, connected to, and drawing from the source material of the apostles. So when you understand that they were authorized to speak for God, they were eyewitnesses uh, of the resurrection, and they were close to the people who were literally commissioned by the voice of Jesus Christ. You You can trust that they had authorization. God said to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Understand that what we believe is God puts his words in the mouths of authorized messengers Sure, maybe you would prefer to walk out every morning and sit on your patio and to have God speak to you from heaven while you do your devotions Right and that'd be very personal and private and meaningful and touching and overall pretty worthless in the grand scheme of history (laughs) Because it's not written down. It's just to you and nobody else heard it So it's better that God gave us a written record of revelation through authorized speakers because it's accessible now to the whole world. So what we believe is that they were authorized to speak for God. Jot this down. We believe that the Holy Spirit inspired their writings. So they weren't just making it up while they went along. Some people say, oh, Paul writes a letter to Timothy. It's male. And it gets in the Bible. Right. But if the Holy Spirit was speaking through them, then it's more than male. Then it is a divine record from heaven to earth. And in John 14, 26, Jesus said this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus foretold that the Holy Spirit would speak through his apostles. So why is the New Testament on par with the Old Testament? Jesus said it. It's going to be the Holy Spirit speaking through you. That makes it a divine record. And Jesus also affirmed that the Old Testament was the voice of the divine. In fact, in Mark 12, 36, Jesus said this, David himself, listen, in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So that was a psalm. And so Jesus was saying that the words of David in the Old Testament were coming from the Holy Spirit. Jesus affirmed that the Old Testament was a divinely inscribed book. It was written by the Holy Spirit through the words of messengers like David. Jesus affirmed that. So they were authorized to speak for God, and the Holy Spirit inspired their writings. And then jot this down. They told the truth at great risk. They told the truth at great risk. It's important to understand that throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament, you find the story written in a way that does not paint the authors in the best light. That gives us a lot of evidence, a lot of reason to believe that they were telling the truth. I mean, they were were humiliating themselves with things they said, the way they doubted. None of the disciples came to the tomb the morning. They all missed Easter, all right? So they told the truth, and they did it uh, in a way that not only jeopardized their reputation in the church, because they were fools, and they didn't believe, but also to the world. They wrote things down that if these letters fell into the hands of Roman or Jewish authorities could get them killed. So they told the truth. At their at risk, uh, at great risk. It's important to know that telling the truth makes you a reliable messenger, and we should expect them to tell the truth, and we believe that they did. When my daughter Ellie was in uh, kindergarten, uh, really young, uh, my uh, wife showed up to help out in the class. It was in the back of the room. I don't know what she was doing, but the teacher started asking the children to share some amazing things from the summer, and Ellie rose her hand up, and she said, I rode a camel, And all the other kids were like, whoa, you rode a camel. And the teacher looked down and said, is that true? And Ellie goes, "Uh uh-huh. And then she looked over and remembered her mom was in the room and said, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. Uh-uh. Nope, I just lied. (laughs) She got caught, right? Now listen, the New Testament authors, if they wrote this stuff down, and were going from town to town, Jesus rose again. There were plenty of people around who were eyewitnesses of the same thing, who could have been like, uh-uh, I was there. You're, you're full of it. I mean, you are absolutely telling lies right now. Uh, when it comes to the, the body of Jesus Christ, all the rulers had to do was show that they had the body. Look, he's dead. Get over it. All right? Look, he's dead. Thomas said he put his fingers in uh, the hand. and You can do it too. It's kind of gross. But come see the corpse. All they had to do was produce a body, and they couldn't, which is why they were speechless. All right? They were telling the truth. They were telling the truth at great risk. 2 Peter 1.16 says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's important to know that the historical record says that all the apostles except John died for their faith. And you might say, well, people die all the time for things that are false. Look at the cults, you know. Well, right, but here's the thing. People don't die for something if they know it to be false. And if they knew it to be false, if they knew that this was one big myth that they all made up, they wouldn't have died for it. Somebody would have squeaked, and they didn't. Uh, And and so what we have here is they told the truth at great risk. Now, what that means is we really have no reason to doubt the the, uh, best conclusion. The best conclusion is that they were genuine, reliable messengers who spoke for God. Now, can you cling to unfounded doubt? Like, well, I still have a hard time believing that. Sure, you can cling to that, but you really don't have any evidence for that conclusion. You really don't have any reason, based on the, the historical records, to say, I know they were lying. You've got to prove that. Okay, You can't just doubt what you're told, uh, because doubt is not a reliable framework to build a, a, a truth claim on. You have to actually come up with evidence to say why you don't think you can trust them. You can't just be like, oh, I find that hard to believe. Well, bring some evidence. Because the best evidence, uh, the best conclusion to be drawn from the authors of the New Testament is that they were telling the truth and that they were messengers who spoke from God. Number one, you can't trust the authors. Number two, jot this down, you can't trust the miracles. All right, fine, I'll give you that the authors were who they said they are and they were writing stuff down, but all of these miracles... How could anyone believe in miracles anymore? This is a scientific age when we value the scientific method. And we know now that miracles are impossible and irreconcilable with natural law. Why would you believe a book that's filled with all of this superstition? So people will push back at the supernatural parts of the book. You know, really, the Red Sea? Really? I mean, how... How can you believe? Walking on water, you still think that's a possible? They were clearly just exaggerating the truth, right? You can't believe the miracles. The Bible claims that there were miracles and that they authenticated the messengers. So in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So, establishing that miracles can exist isn't just important to show that you know the bible tells the truth but the miracles also authenticated the messengers now here's what we believe jot this down if god exists then miracles are possible if god exists then miracles are possible the only way really to prove that miracles are impossible is to disprove the existence of god and no one has done that So if you were to say to me, I just don't believe in miracles, in order to establish that that is true, you either have to prove that there's no such thing as God, good luck doing that, or you have to allow for the reality that miracles could exist if God exists. All right? Now, if you still cling to that and you're like, I just don't believe it's true, then that's just a bias. It's fine if you believe that, but you have to understand that you're just being biased against anything supernatural before you're taking the evidence into account. Uh, But logically the truth is this, if there is a God, then miracles are possible. And if you can't disprove God, you have to at least allow for the possibility of miracles. Many people believe today that every event in the world must have a natural and only a natural cause. That's a big problem, even scientifically, because you can't prove that the universe has a natural and only a natural cause. In fact, all the scientific evidence that we have proves to the reality that the universe doesn't have a natural cause. It can't have a natural cause. Whatever caused this universe from the beginning had to have power greater than the sum total of the universe. It had to have a mind greater than the sum total of intelligence in the universe, and it had to have a will that uh, exceeds all the forces in the entire universe. By definition, none of that can be natural. It has to be something greater than the natural, or dare we say it, supernatural. Uh, The science shows that. You can't come up with a natural explanation for the world that you see today. Nor can you come up with a natural explanation for the calibration of the cosmos. It happened so immediately after the universe burst into flames in the beginning. There's no natural explanation for why the universe is calibrated the way that it is. So therefore, science is wonderful at explaining a lot of things and, and discovering a lot of truth. Science cannot explain everything. Uh, it can't explain everything. And to, so to say, I'm only going to rely on what can be lab-tested, um, well, that's not the way that uh, truth works. Truth is much bigger than that. If God exists, miracles are possible, and science cannot prevent a divine being from overruling the rules he established. Science can't do that. So you can't say, well, science has disproved miracles. If there is a God... He can do what he wants with what he made. So you can't trust the miracles. Well, if God exists, miracles are possible. Jot this down. Miracles confirmed divine messages and messengers. Miracles gave um, supernatural uh, backing to the messenger and what he was saying. So Peter raised the dead. Can you do that? Paul raised the dead. All the apostles cast out demons. They healed diseases. There was the miraculous catch where there was this wonderful sign where they caught nothing all night long and then suddenly the boats were sinking because of a miraculous catch. Somehow the fish were obeying a supernatural order to go into the net. Paul survived a shipwreck, got ashore, and then was bitten by a snake. Ouch! And then he shook the snake off into the fire, and the islanders were like, oh, he's a dead man. And then when he survived, they're like, he must be God. And he's like, no, no, I'm not God, but I'll tell you about the true God. So the miracles authenticated the messenger so that they can tell them about the God behind the miracles. The miracles also authenticated that Jesus was the Messiah, and he did signs and wonders and miracles that proved that he was from heaven and not from earth. He walked on water. He calmed the storm. He raised the dead. Uh, He told people what they were thinking before they said it. It's remarkable. And so when people say you can't trust the miracles, we would just say if God exists, miracles are possible. And because the miracles happen, and they happen with eyewitnesses, um, we believe that they did authenticate that these were messengers speaking for God. Number one, you can't trust the authors. Number two, you can't trust the miracles. Number three, you jot this down, you can't trust its message, All right, well, let's get down to what the Bible actually says. You can't trust that anymore, the teachings in there, really? It's full of contradictions. It's outdated. It's obsolete. It's offensive. It says one thing one place and another thing another place. There are people in there who were terrible people who the Bible says had faith. Plus, truth is relative, and the Bible can be interpreted however you want. So you say it says one thing, and someone else says another thing. How on earth are we supposed to know that your version of the Bible is the right one? So people will question its message. Let's begin by talking about the errors in the Bible. Jot this down. There are no errors in the Bible. There are no errors in the Bible. The Bible tells the truth, and it's consistent start to finish And when people say there's an error in the Bible, just say, okay, which one? Share that with me, and I'd love to talk through that. And what you'll find is the Bible, yes, is a human book, and it contains human modes of expression. But our claim is that in its original form, in the original manuscripts, it doesn't contradict itself or teach anything that's an error or that is untrue. Uh, when it comes for why people say there's errors in the Bible, sometimes it's because the Bible allows for many literary forms of expression. So uh, the Bible has many different genres, many different styles of writing, you know, so uh, for example, when it said, oh, the mustard seed is the smaller seed, no, it's not, science shows there's a smaller seed than that. Well, it's not, it's not making a scientific claim, that doesn't mean it's false, it, it, it's just a literary device to talk about how faith can be small, Right? Um, so sometimes people challenge the form of, of writing that it is, or you know, in, the, in the allegories, or, or in the uh, uh, apocalyptic books where it talks about things that are, there's no way that that's possible. Well, you've got to take the literature behind it. If it's written as a song or a poem, or if it's written to be allegory, or if it's written to be hyperbole, you can't be like, oh, that's inaccurate. The Bible is not meant to be a technical scientific manual. So sometimes it's genre, Um, sometimes people think that there's errors in the Bible, uh, and we'll get on to a few more things we can say to that, but understand, like, let me read you from Luke chapter one verses one to four. Luke models for us how careful the authors were to get it right. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us... Just as those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So you might be like, oh, if if only there were like a non-insider, like a Gentile guy, a Greek guy, not a Jew, from the beginning, who walked around with a notepad and checked that all this stuff was right. You got it! Read the book of Luke. That's what he did. He's walking around. All right, Mary, tell me again that angel. He investigated it all. And he wrote what he found. So they really were trying to get it right. Luke wrote the book of Acts as well. And when you study all the different islands and cities and places and rulers that he quotes, archaeology has confirmed so much of what he said as being accurate. They were writing an accurate record. You can't trust its message. Well, there, there are no errors in the Bible, it is very accurate. Now jot this down, different authors had different goals. So sometimes people will say, well, Matthew says one thing, Mark says another. Well, they're writing from a different perspective, and they are often writing to a different audience. So you might be like, oh, well, no other gospel writer says this but him, so it's unlikely that it happened. Well, an explanation could be that he had a different goal and a different audience. So Matthew wrote to Jews, Mark wrote to Romans, Luke wrote to Greeks, John wrote to the world. And therefore, they would emphasize different things, they would exclude different things, they would feature different things, they would compile their book differently. Um, Paul wrote his letters to churches to build them up. So he's not, he doesn't have a desire to, you know, record a historical record. Well, how come Paul never talked about this or that? Well, he had a purpose, and he had an audience, and he had a goal. So sometimes these authors are put on trial, and the expectation is, well, they don't all say exactly the same thing, so you can't trust what they're saying. Actually, if you look at who they were and who they were writing to and what their goal was, what they're saying actually makes sense, and it doesn't contradict what other people were saying about similar topics. Um, How can James say uh, that faith without works is dead, and then how can Paul say that we're saved by faith, you know, not through works? Well, when you look at what they were trying to establish based on truth, they actually are very compatible in what they're saying because James is right. If your faith doesn't change you, it hasn't saved you. And so works do serve to authenticate that you are a saved person before man. And that's where people can see that you're saved. But when Paul says, we're saved by faith alone, that's true. When you get before God's presence, it is going to be by faith alone that we're saved. So they are saying things that nuance the same truth in different ways. It can sound contradictory, There are passages that are very hard to understand. There are some passages or words or phrases in the Old Testament that we're not sure what they mean. So I'm not saying that there aren't places where it's like, that's confusing, or that's difficult, or those two things sound like they're hard to reconcile. Uh, But that doesn't mean that they're errors, and that doesn't mean that they're mistakes. It just means that they're truths that are difficult to understand or to explain. So there are no errors in the Bible. Uh, Different authors had different goals and jot this down, the context determines the meaning. Very often people who challenge teachings or verses ignore the context. And we believe that, uh, this is again where the world disagrees with us, we believe that where you get a meaning from the Bible is the uh, author's intended message. So we believe in the historical, literal, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. So whatever was said in its historical context, historical, Whatever it literally meant at the time, whatever grammatically the words say it means, that is what it means. And then we start with that and we say, okay, here's what Moses was saying. And, and then we figure out what does that mean to us today and how does that line up with what all the other biblical authors have said. But when you understand the context, that clears up um, almost all of the problems that people find in what the Bible is saying. The context determines the meaning. Different authors have different goals. There are no errors in the Bible, and therefore you can trust its message. Um, you can stand behind what the Bible says, and you can stand behind the reality that there are no errors or mistakes or lies or untruths in the Bible. Sometimes there are things that happen in the Bible that are recorded, uh, but that are not condoned, right? Um, so when, uh, when you find, like, in the Old Testament, somebody murdering somebody or, or taking multiple wives or whatever, it records something That it doesn't always necessarily condone. And you might be like, how can that be in the Bible, right? Or or like slavery. I preached a whole sermon once about slavery and what the Bible says about slavery. How can the Bible talk about slavery? Well, it's describing the historical record accurately. Uh, It's not necessarily saying this is the way the world ought to be. It's just reporting on how the world was and managing a very unfortunate dynamic within the Roman Empire or in the Old Testament. So sometimes people challenge the Bible of having things that are offensive, but at the same time, that doesn't mean the Bible is saying this is the way the world ought to be. So number one, they'll say you can't trust the authors. Number two, they'll say you can't trust the miracles. Number three, they'll say you can't trust the message. Number four, here's the last one, they'll say, well, you can't trust the history of it. And now we'll talk about the transmission of it. Well, yeah. Wasn't it changed later? I mean, even if the disciples wrote it down and thought they were telling the truth and got it almost right, I mean, later, the church just really tampered with it, right? So what we have today can't be even close to what the historical record was. What do you say when that comes up? People will say, we all know the Bible has been changed. Powerful men in the church decided what would be in the Bible hundreds of years later, and therefore you can't know what really happened or who Jesus really was. How do we respond to that? Well, in Matthew 5.18, Jesus says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus talks about the indestructibility of God's word, and Jesus talks about how it, it will last until the end, though you know, though the earth fade away and my word never will. And so Jesus has, has guaranteed us that the word of God will be preserved by God. Now, how do we test if that's actually happening? How do we see God actually preserving his word accurately throughout the generations? You know, can we trust that what Jesus said is actually happening? Well, yes. Jot this down. The Bible is the best preserved book in the ancient world. And I remember being at Oakland High School once, because we'll often go into high schools by the invitation of students, and we'll, we'll uh, do lunchtime rallies where we share the gospel, and kids come during high school to this rally, we give them pizza, we share the gospel, or we bring in like a former NFL running back to share the gospel, and then we let them ask questions. So I was on stage at Oaklawn High School one year, and there were, there were several Muslim students off in the corner. And they, they weren't really taking it seriously. They were kind of joking around and whatever. But then somebody asked me, well, why do you still trust the Bible today? And I said, well, it's, um, it's the best preserved and attested book in the ancient world. And no other book is like that. And they all looked at me. And one of the boys said, uh, no, it's not. The Quran is. And then we had a wonderful conversation, which is the goal. We had a wonderful conversation. I asked him questions about... The Quran, and often Muslims believe that Muhammad dictated the Quran to his followers, which he didn't. Their historical records don't show that is true. And they say that there's one copy that's been perfectly preserved throughout all the generations, and that's simply not true. When you dig into the history of the Quran, you find that Muhammad did not dictate anything, nor was anything written down. Um, directly by him before he died. And so after he died, someone, his leaders, had to go around and collect his sayings that were passed down orally and copied by different people. And what their own historical records show is that they brought these records in. Some of them were missing. Um, Some some people who wrote down records, their their bits were were, uh, destroyed or they lost them. So they had an incomplete record. And then when they compiled it and released the first version, there was all sorts of arguing over whether or not that was the truth. And so finally they brought all these varying manuscripts into one place and a person said, look, this is the authorized version and then he burned the remaining copies of the disputed parts. All right. Now that is what their history says happened. But that's not often what they're taught. So I shared this with him and I said, look, you've got to go look, look into how your book came about. But what you just told me is not what your historical records reflect. Now when it comes to our book... Uh, What do we believe about how... Did that happen? Did somebody grab all the copies and bring them into a room and say, this is the Bible and this is not and burn the rest of them? Is that what happened? No. What we know is that the Bible is the best preserved book in the ancient world. Um, We've got a slide here with some facts, but most ancient documents have 20 surviving copies or less. So if you want to know what Homer wrote, you know, there's like best... case, You've got maybe 20 copies that have survived... Or less, sometimes one or two. We have 5,000 Greek copies of the New Testament. Now, sometimes the gap between these copies is usually a thousand years between the original and between the copies. So, even if you find a, a copy of, you know, the Iliad, the copy was written down a thousand years after the original. That's a long time. It's very hard in the ancient world to find copies that are close to when the original work was penned. <laughs> And so by comparison, we have original pieces of the New Testament that are just 50 years old from, uh, from when they were first written. Just 50 years later, we have copies from that. We have entire books that are 100 years old, and we have an entire New Testament that is 200 years old. And yes, there is some time that passed from the original, but here's what you see. You see these copies that scribes devoted their lives to writing down. These copies were spread out all over the ancient world. So you'll find some in Africa, some in India, some in Europe. You'll find some uh, in in Turkey. You find these copies, and it wasn't until later that they were all brought back together. No one had the ability to tamper with the copies, okay? They couldn't go to all these places and grab all 5,000 copies, and once they finally started bringing all these copies back together, the New Testament, uh, given all the copies that were brought together, had like 97 and 99% uh, uniformity across the copies. That's a good grade on a test, if you ask me. Now, this is just grading the transmission of the Bible. okay? And what we see is that it has every mark of being divinely preserved. There are so many copies, and they were so well uh, scribed, that we can be confident that what we have traces right back to the original message. So it's the best preserved book in the ancient world. Its transmission is supernatural. Jot this down. The copies rule out widespread tampering. When you pull up the copies, yeah, there'll be some minor scribal errors, uh, like spelling mistakes or words switched around or marginal notes. Uh, There will be a few disputed passages that weren't in the earliest copies that maybe were in the later. But in your Bible, Bible there will always be little notes at the bottom that say, most early manuscripts don't have this passage. Or, there'll be little notes that say, you know, the meaning of this phrase is uncertain. So the Bible is very honest in saying, look, this, this reflects a scribal discrepancy here that you should know about. That, again, doesn't mean that the original copy was an error. That just means that the scribes who are writing it down may have made a mistake. Um, and none of those mistakes change or alter the meaning of the Bible, or suggest that overall the Bible was filled with meanings from the beginning. The New Testament copies were very well preserved. The Old Testament is a different story, and I can spend hours talking about this, but uh, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls really closed the gap by a thousand years from uh, what we had from the Old Testament. And for example, when they found a, a book of Isaiah, And lined it up with a copy from Isaiah from a thousand years earlier uh, or hundreds of years earlier. What they found was that they were so close um, that the the scribes did an excellent job making sure that they were writing down word for word what was happening. So the copies rule out widespread tampering. And then jot this down. The church confirmed the canon. And some people will go right to this. They'll be like, well, I know the church changed, changed the Bible. You know, the church got together, and they decided what books are in and what books are out. That's just not true. The early church fathers in their writings, and we don't even have time to talk about them. We could talk about the early church fathers, and we could also talk about external references to Christ by people outside the church. Um, But the early church fathers um, throughout history were talking about the book, and just from their writings alone, you could reconstruct almost all of the New Testament. If we lost all the copies, the early church fathers quoted virtually all of it. Uh, And what we find is that the church had a growing consensus about which letters and books were canon, and then that was challenged in the 300s AD, and so the church did get together to have a few councils, not to create the canon, but to defend the canon against its attack. People were like, nope, this is the only thing, this is what belongs in the Bible and not that. So the church got together, and there were definitely four books that required more scrutiny and more attention before uh, the, the churches together agreed that they were in the canon. But at the end of it, after the end of a few church councils, the church unanimously agreed that this is the Bible. These are the books that belong in there. They didn't create the canon. They authenticated it because it was being attacked, because it was being disputed. And it's very important to understand that That we believe that the church didn't decide which books were Bible and not. God did that. And that leads me to the final comment I'll make. We believe that God is the one who decided which books got into the Bible. And we believe that the Bible is a reliable, credible, historical document. But here's the thing. That bears the authority of God. And therefore, the greatest way for you to be convinced that the Bible is God's word is to read it and to listen to it and to see if you encounter God Inside of it. We really believe that the Bible is self authenticating. And I'm not saying that by saying, well, just read it and you'll know it's God's Word. Look, I just put a lot of time into giving you historical, rational, biblical arguments, showing you that it can be trusted. But what I'm saying to you is this that alone can't convince you that it's God's Word. If you read it and if you feel like God is speaking to you, then you'll know that it is God's Word. I'm up here defending the Bible. And, and I love doing it, but I almost feel like defending the Bible is like defending Mike Tyson. Like if we were at a restaurant and someone walked up and slapped Mike Tyson, I was like, oh, you don't touch him. You touch him and you got to deal with me. I think he'll be okay. Don't you? Like if Mike Tyson got slapped and had to get up and defend himself, don't you think he really doesn't need me to do it? Would you agree? He'd be like, step aside, all right? And he'd take care of business. And um, I would just say this. The Bible can defend itself. But the question is, are you willing to give it a fair trial? It would be a shame if you pronounced the Bible guilty before you gave it a fair trial. It would be a shame if from the ringside you shouted into the ring, you're a loser, hey, hey, step in the ring, all right? Step in the ring, Many people smarter than you have done it. Many people older than you have done it. Many people more righteous or more wicked than you have stepped in that ring and said, I'm really going to figure out if this book is the Word of God. But, but don't be a ringside heckler who just throws in these accusations that you can't back up. All right. If you want to rumble with the Word of God, get in the ring and bring it. And I'm saying you can bring your hardest questions, you can bring your toughest accusations You can bring your deepest doubts and give the Word of God a fair hearing. And trust me, you won't be disappointed. I'll close by sharing what Abraham Lincoln said about this book. He said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has given to man. But for this book, we could not know right from wrong. Take all you can of this book upon reason and the balance on faith. And you will live and die a happier man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have great rational historical reasons to believe that we're holding a trustworthy book. That the best evidence suggests that these authors were writing down the truth as they experienced it. And that they were recording it as your spirit led them along. I know, Lord, that there are so many questions that we couldn't even get to today, so many different ways we could uh, challenge and test to see if your word is true and accurate. But, Lord, I hope that this has established a culture in this church where we can ask these questions, where we can have honest conversations about you, your voice, your book, and the reliability. And I hope, Lord, I pray for those here today who do have genuine doubts and they would like to trust the Bible more. I pray that they would ask those questions and be courageous and that they would seek answers. But I also pray for the skeptics, for the doubters. I pray for the people who just have a grudge against you, for the people who are biased against the supernatural. I pray for the people who just don't want it to be true. And Father, I I pray for them because I, I was one of them. I was one of them. I remember what that was like when I was a freshman in college, and I... I didn't trust your word and I didn't trust you and I questioned everything and I challenged everything and at one point I even threw the Bible across the room because I didn't want it to be true. Uh, So Father, I I just pray for them as a, a, a former skeptic who once doubted everything I just proclaimed. And I pray that they, like me, that they would finally get serious and finally ask their questions to someone who can help them find answers, that they would set aside their bias if they have one, their grudge if they're holding on to one, and that they would finally actually discover if the Bible is what it claims to be, the Word of God. And I pray that they would be courageous in that quest. And I pray that as they find those answers, that they would come to see that there is a God who speaks from heaven, And Jesus, if there is anyone here today who is ready to surrender their life to the Word of God, may they just pray in their own hearts and say, Jesus, I believe, I believe the Word of God is true about you, about your death, burial, resurrection. I believe it's true about how you change lives. I believe it's true about how you went to prepare a place for us in heaven, how you return, rescue us, and rule forever. I believe the Word of God. Father, fill them with the confidence that only your truth can bring. We pray this in Jesus' name.